Welcome everybody to another conversation through Beyond Psychedelics, where we talk about the business, science, and future of where psychedelic medicine and treatment is going to. Today, really excited. We have a really awesome guest with us, Tyler Rort. Am I saying that correctly, the last name? It's Rowart, like flower. Rowart. Rowart, got it. Tyler Rowland from um, Colorado. We've been in communication through the past couple of weeks. Tyler's been an expert in so many different fields. He'll share some of his, some of his story. He's been a senior counsel right currently for the Sportis corporate team out in Colorado. His career spans from merger and acquisitions, entity formation, international business transactions, SaaS, software as a, as a service, data privacy, intellectual property. Prior to being at Fortis, he was the VP of legal at PAX8, which is a global cloud software marketplace. He's also contributed to the global data privacy posture at a Berkshire Hathaway company. And he spent several years in private practice, lending corporate transactional and brand protection teams for Denver area law firms, including serving as the lead marketing and brand protection attorney for Chipotle Mexican Grill. Before his career in the current space where he's in, Tyler also worked in national security and international law for the US Department of Defense. So I'm really intrigued to hear more about Tyler. Thank you for right. taking the time to be here with us. Obviously, as the psychedelic industry continues to expand and grow, the legal system and the legal, um, the way in which the legal system will play a role in it is going to be really important for everybody to understand. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's great to be here, Sebastian. Thanks so much for asking me. Absolutely, Tyler. So let's get off. Let's let's give them, the listeners an, an idea as to who you are and your journey that's gotten you to where you're at today. I think the best way to do this is just to be uh, chronological about it because I'm not a lot like the other lawyers that you're going to run into. Um, and that's not good or bad. I'm just a little bit different. Here's why. So I grew up on a farm in the middle of Nebraska, right? So I was a farm boy, went to uh, college in Missouri and then law school in Washington, D.C. And so I was in law school in D.C. on September 11th. I happened to speak a little Persian and given, you know, some of my my background I had while I was in law school, I, I originally went there with the intention of doing international mergers and acquisitions, international business transactions. Plus, you know, I was a political science major undergrad, so DC was exactly the right spot to go to school. Um, but 9-11 shifted some stuff for me and and for everybody. And so since I had some skills that were useful, I pivoted my career. Really, the way it looks now is, you know, looking backwards, I took about a 10-year detour into national security that's been really, really helpful for me. So most of my time in national security was actually spent, like, yeah, I was a lawyer. I was doing international law work there, often working very closely with foreign militaries and and national security structures and intelligence services and trying to help them come to a consensus on terrorism, international crime, what we were going to do about these problems, how we were going to work together. So most of my time there was really spent in building collaborations across cultures and across folks who typically would be at odds with one another, but finding ways that we could all sort of work together for a common common good. And a lot of conflict resolution there. So like worked on the Nepali Civil War and the Sri Lankan Civil War in Afghanistan, Iraq and and um, the Iran nuclear deal. So Colorado, about 10 years ago, largely for family reasons. And because let's be honest, counterterrorism is a young man's game. And when you start having kids and you've got too much to worry about, it's it's time to come home. So we moved to Colorado. I started my my law practice up here. 
And, you know, in that time, it's just, it's been a lot of, um, it's been a lot of fun. I've done, you know, government and outside counsel to law firms, a lot of mergers and acquisitions and venture capital and private equity deal work, but also sort of outside general counsel for folks. A lot of, a lot of time spent working for foreign companies who are coming into the United States. So helping others get used to the, the American legal system helping folks navigate some some difficult industries like cannabis here in Colorado to your audience like the, the my first introduction to psychedelic assisted work was gosh it's been seven eight years ago or so I was the lawyer hired to form one of the first um, ketamine assisted therapy clinics here in in the state and so did did a lot of that work you know when they first came into my office my first question was sort of, you you doing what? Is this even legal? Like I had to have one of my associates check out that, yeah, this is legit. We can do this. So I've evolved quite a bit since then. Part of that was going in-house, working for a, for a Berkshire Hathaway company here, and then Pax8, which was one of these rocket ship unicorns that sort of has taken off through the stratosphere. Like when I joined Pax8, we were about 400 employees all in the United States and by the time I left, it's closer to 2,000 employees and we're, you know, a unicorn and we're operating in 20 countries and those sorts of things. So it's, um, it's really, um, that gave me a, a great perspective on business and growth trajectories and, and what that looks like that I now try to bring back into my private practice. And I'll be all, um, honest about this, Sebastian, I went back into private practice because while I love Pax8 and the technology ecosystem and and what that looks like to, to really have a high growth company. I wanted to make myself available for the psychedelic renaissance that's occurring now because I think that has the potential to make an outsized impact on people in a way that, you know, nothing wrong with cloud software distribution, but that's not going to change anybody's life. Some work in the psychedelic space can can do that, and I think I've got a certain set of skills that can be useful to folks in the industry. So really, it's it's I went back into private practice in order to make myself available for, for that space. Man, so that's me in a nutshell. That's incredible to 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 hear of all the different areas that you've been. And what I get from you, from what you're sharing right now, is that sense of impact. You're looking to really make a long term difference for the people that you're working with. And as we've seen, as the as now uh, research shows. Psychedelic treatments is one of the ways where people are literally seeing drastic positive shifts in their lives. And I mean, you come from a background of being in in in, in the not the military, but in the force since one way or another. Oh, yeah. And there's so many cases right now of people that are coming back from war and PTSD has completely taken over their lives. They go through something like a ketamine assisted session and through a series of them, they're able to now set back into their day-to-day much more uh, present sense of peace. So thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Good the work I'm sure that you're going to do in the next coming up years is going to make a big difference in it. How have you seen the psychedelic medicine space shift and evolve over the past couple of years? Because you're in Colorado, which has been like the yeah. one of the charge for a while. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, what's interesting about it, Sebastian, is, you know, very early on, I think there was a lot of hesitation, right? Like, is is this, you know, there were some folks who were leading that charge here and, and you know, Colorado's pretty progressive on on these matters. And so it's a great place to live. It's a great place to to grow an industry. I think early, you know, we start with 
ketamine-assisted therapy, and that's really the only sort of space where where the the psychedelic space could could really take hold anywhere on a legal basis, right? So there was some slow movements there. We saw the process building, and as far as the legalization of psychedelics generally in Denver, like Denver decriminalized psilocybin several years ago, which really kind of, I think, gave Oregon the um, the inspiration to try to go statewide in Oregon to do their thing. And then we followed that with with our own Natural Medicine Health Act in, in November of, of 22, followed up pretty closely by a Senate bill here recently. So the legal landscape is shifting here to allow for the use of plant medicines in therapy, you know, and facilitation of healing centers and those sorts of things. So that's a that's a fundamental change. I see things shifting over time as well to sort of broaden the base of that industry. You know, like it's I think we need to um, be balanced in our our view here. Um, I do think there's a, not a danger, but a risk in moving too fast that what we want to do is learn the lessons from our mothers and fathers in the 1960s and seventies who maybe did go a little fast, faster than the culture was ready. And there was a backlash. It's taken 50 years to sort of get through. And so while while we see the value in psychedelic, especially in psychedelic assisted therapies uh, and the the mental health work that can be done here, we want to do that smartly. We want to do it hand in hand with the regulators who are going to be a part of this ship. Thankfully in Colorado, the, that relationship is really great. Like we, we live in, a, I happen to live in a place where um, the regulatory environment and the advocates seem to be moving things in the same direction at a at a reasonable pace. And I'll say, man, like I was first exposed to psychedelics through my buddies in the national security system. You know, a lot of us were in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places that weren't on the news and experienced some real trauma, right? And seeing the benefits that this sort of work is having with veterans is really what triggered me to to get involved in the first place and now i've seen the benefits that it offers and the and the you know having read into the science a little bit more it's a pretty persuasive argument for the value and potency of these modalities um and now what we have to do is meet people where they are and bring them along with it. Because there are some folks who see the light and they're going for it and they're going as fast as they can go and that is great. And we're going to have to bring everybody else along with us as we're doing that. And the best way to do it is usually with some combination of sort of strength of conviction and kindness and and meeting people where they are. Mm, such a beautiful thing, that kindness, that sense of compassion to understand that just because we see the light and we know where it's going to, not everybody will. And we're all in it. Yeah. I think one of the key things of us as humans is that if we can truly be in a place of acceptance where we don't agree with somebody, that's when we can actually create the space of possibility with that individual. Not when we try yeah. to you, not when we try to change what they believe, because I mean, how many times did that work for me growing up? Somebody telling me what's <laughs> <a> <laughs> never worked. 
never work. And I mentioned something super cool with Colorado and where you're at, because you live in a state where, like you mentioned, the activists of the policymakers are working in the same, on the same boat, moving in the same direction. What do you think any state or anywhere in the world right now that doesn't have that similar dynamic in play could do to bring that level of synergy? Mm, that's a good, that's a really good question. So I think the way that you're, again, I always start with meeting people where they are. So if you live in a state where the politics sort of don't at this point lend themselves toward, you know, pushing something like this. Like there are some, some states where you're going to start in a different place. If you live in California, for example, you've got a different avenue into policymakers who are maybe a little bit more open to ideas like this and, and are, are willing to, to move forward. I, I think states that were that have legalized cannabis and have had good experiences there are some of the, the best candidates for sort of next steps. But this is, uh, I want to make sure that we're providing access to everybody, or at least as many people as possible who would benefit from therapies like this. Now, thankfully, with psychedelic assisted therapy, there's, there's going to be a legalized track, you know, as well as some substances that are still schedule one for a while. So I'm thinking, for example, you know, ketamine is already legal. MDMA will be soon. Like the the MAPS trials have, have made it pretty clear that we are likely to see legal MDMA or PTSD therapy here soon. So that's going to be a, a legal mode of, of doing this work. And then for for those that are, for those substances that are federally illegal, but maybe state level legal, you're going to want to start working with not policymakers right away, but I would say start at the grassroots and building support within communities. We often see that these issues are floated to the top of the political pile, not by elected representatives, because they have a lot to lose. They typically come from a grassroots level up, you know, the propositions, you know, citizen propositions on the ballot in Oregon and Colorado or what what works here. I mean, that's how Colorado has legalized cannabis and and now um the substances that that are, you know, um being legalized in Colorado through our our recent legislation, these are coming from citizens, from folks who work to get do the hard work of building consensus on what needs to happen state by state, city by city, then they can they can use those small wins to demonstrate it's like proof of concept, right? Like you just yep. you build on those small wins to move things in the direction that you want to go. But I wouldn't listen, I'm no political activist, but what I see working is skipping elected representatives and politicians and building a grassroots movement for this because those can work across political parties. We we live in a very divided, divisive political environment, but I see things like enhancing accessibility to psychedelics as bipartisan or nonpartisan, that there's, uh, I've seen Republicans and Democrats all get on, and independents all get on board with this for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But they still have the same goal. So if we can find those areas of commonality, come together around those, like maybe in your state, you can only get, I don't know, 
psilocybin decriminalized for the purposes of therapy sessions with military veterans with PTSD. If that's the first step that you can you can take, then you should take it, right? And and try to help as many people as we can to build that base of support moving forward. Because that's that's what's going to make change is just the human beings that benefit from it. And then the politicians will respond mm-hmm. to to the pressure that they're seeing coming from the from their constituents. It's an incredibly encouragement, uh, encouraging perspective that you share, Tyler, because I think about if we take a look at all the movements that have taken out throughout history, it typically is from the bottom up. It typically is grassroots, a group of people coming together and they, oh, yeah. they come as a group to with a greater purpose and start to move the ball forward. So I think that's incre- incredibly encouraging, especially again in an industry that's still so small. I mean, the last psychedelic science event, I think had anywhere from 17 to 1900 people. This one had 12,000 people. So it, there's a an exponential growth taking place. And in that, I do see people coming together. And even there at the event itself, there were so many people that were in a conversation of how do we work together as a group? And something that you also mentioned before, how do we slow down? Because I think a lot of people are trying to go from zero to 100. And as they're trying to super speed it, they're actually not taking into account that it's going to take some time for things to actually integrate properly. I mean, yeah. people that are currently going through treatment right now who don't have any sort of integration support following, that doesn't work. That can't work for the future of people's health. And this is something that could impact the legalization on a wide scale, because if someone's going through, let's say, a ketamine session, they don't have the integration. Next thing you know, they're now going down the opposite route, maybe in even a down spiral. And that's the right. last thing they look at is, oh, ketamine. Well, maybe it was the ketamine without taking into account the actual integration. So slow down is so powerful, so key. What a, what a key uh, component you're bringing to the picture. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, look, our... I think our goal is sustainability. Like we, we know that we want to maximize access to these treatments that have real impact on folks. And look, man, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I do think the next revolution in our society, you know, we had the agricultural revolution, we had the industrial revolution, we had the telecommunications sort of revolution with the rise of the internet. I think as we're looking at candidates for the next sort of economic and cultural revolution that that hits the world people are talking about ai i think it we're we're looking at a consciousness revolution where people understand themselves and how they view reality differently and that can be assisted through some of this work so i think the the potential for these modalities is limitless what we have to make sure that we do is we're trying to build an ecosystem and that takes time and cultivation like nature takes a while to produce a forest right like to produce an ecosystem and there are going to be predators and prey in that ecosystem and there are going to be you know it's it's one of those uh the analogy breaks down at a certain point but if we can start thinking about you know how long does it take for a tree to grow it it doesn't come up overnight and if you try to make it grow too fast you're gonna hurt it Mm -hmm. and so what we can do is just recognize that ultimately everybody that's involved here is a human being and human beings are animals we are all part of nature anyway so we can only process change so quickly and we need to slow ourselves down sometimes so that we can actually in as you said integrate the changes that we've seen like if we actually want it to take hold we have to give ourselves the time and space to do it and look i get being excited about the potential and wanting to make that happen 
right away. But one of the great things about psychedelic assisted therapy is the ego disillusion that can come along with it and your ability to see past your immediate gratification needs and move into this space of like, I can work with others and meet them where they are because I feel more connected with them. And you can, that, I think that's the beauty of the the psychedelic renaissance is that it's different from like the telecommunications boom. It's not just about cash money, homie. It's about improving humanity. The financial part of that will come along for the ride. Like it can't help but happen. So long as we continue to stay focused on how this can help human beings, real people, and as many as possible, as quickly as possible, while balancing that with people who haven't been exposed to this are going to fear the changes that this is bringing about, and we have to meet them where they are and bring them along. So that's going to slow things down a little bit. But for the long-term health of the enterprise, it's probably better for us to grow slowly. Slow growth tends to be sustainable, solid, life-changing growth. And and to your point of what happened back in the 60s and 70s, it happened too quickly. People couldn't really yeah. handle it. The, 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 the policy itself couldn't handle it. It just happened too fast. So we got to learn from our past mistakes. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in the same situation wondering what happened when it's ultimately up to us as individuals in communities to take this on, slow it down, and actually move it forward. Absolutely. And you know what, man? Like, you know, I just came from the tech sector where we talk about, you know, grow fast and break things, right? Like that's that's the idea. We don't have that luxury. Like we, the 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 model from like the um, Silicon Valley tech sector model, I don't think can be superimposed on the psychedelics industry because in in the technology sector, if you break something, it's you're breaking a software application, and somebody doesn't have access to their you know cat pictures as quickly as they would like to or whatever filter on snap that they want to use what we're talking about here is people's lives like we we don't have the luxury of going fast and break breaking things so we can we can do that yeah you can try you can innovate some things are going to fail but there's a a different um it you can't just analogize from what worked in other high growth sectors to what will work in the psychedelic industry and I don't think we want to go through the a similar trajectory as you know other industries where there's like a boom, a gold rush, then a crash, and then maybe it comes back to sustainable growth. Like I think we'd all like a smoother glide path than was experienced, for example, in cannabis. Sure, because there's a big impact. If the consequences yeah. don't work out, to your point, I mean, these are people's lives that we're dealing with. So that's absolutely. Right. Now you bring up cannabis, and I've been thinking about this but from the seller marketing perspective. We're able yeah. to take a lot of what happened in the mar- in the cannabis space and translate it into the psychedelic space. It's consistently shifting, so it's not like a done and done thing. It's more of like a done and redo kind of kind of style. From the legal perspective, do you see yeah. it as, as a similar perspective to compare what happened in the cannabis space into now the emerging psychedelic treatment? As as far as sales and marketing, Don't no, on the legal perspective. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's different, right? Like there, there are some similarities and there are some differences. I, I think the major one is cannabis was legalized at the state level more as a commodity. There's a 
product that became legalized and the for first medical and then recreational use, but never in combination with like, you know, medical cannabis. Yes, there was a doctor's prescription, but it wasn't the kind of integrative care that we're talking about with psychedelics. Like what makes psychedelics different is not just the substance, but it's combination with services and integration that can really amplify the effects of the, like the substance itself. And when somebody's on a trip, like, yes, that's where the magic happens, but the real growth and change happens in the integration process afterwards, sort of making that a part the new you and the new who you are. That's not the case with cannabis at all. Cannabis, it was just sort of like, hey, look, we're we're basically creating a what ultimately is like a liquor store, right? Like it's you've got a a, yep. a dispensary a dispensary within ten minutes drive from my house. That that's exactly it. Or you know you're in a different place in the industry. You're a manufacturer, but you're making a product. You're making consumer packaged goods for the most part, or or throughout that supply chain. Like it's a it's a heavily regulated supply chain focused on a product or a sort of suite of products, suite of related products. So that has one kind of legal implication. That's much more in terms of okay, we got to deal with 280E, which will also we can get into. That's the tax regulation that um, is the bane of the cannabis industry and it's also likely to to impact um, psychedelics. So we've got 280E that is the same, but because these are products rather than services, the regulation is very different. And we may see a shift in psychedelics away from sort of a service-focused industry toward one where the focus is more on the product themselves. In fact, I I think that's a wise thing to do because I want to make sure that folks aren't just growing their own mushrooms and taking them to a session and we don't know exactly how much they've used and what the quality is. I'd much rather have, you know, people with access to tested, vetted products that we know what their dosage is going to be and we know how how this is going to impact somebody based on their size and their history and those sorts of things. So I think there's there's stuff we can take to move in that direction. But because these are two very different models to start with, they have different legal implications, right? So also we've learned from cannabis in the legal industry that, you know, for example, some of the structuring decisions that we were making early in the cannabis industry, now we know with case law over 280E and the IRS litigating some of these structures that they're just not going to work in the same way. So we've got to be a little bit more creative. And and this, I think, gets back to my broader point, which is it's very difficult to drop a, an existing model of an industry growth and development onto the psychedelics industry, right? Like the venture capital and private equity model probably only works in a couple of areas, like in um, at the FDA route and with a few technologies, but for most of the ecosystem, that's that's really not going to going to work very well. The cannabis industry might work for some pieces of it, but not for all. It's it's just a different industry. So we, rather than dropping my old legal models onto a new industry, what I'm trying to do is think creatively about how do we shape this industry with legal and accounting and business practice and marketing and and really ecosystem models that are 
different and that work for this industry where we we don't necessarily think there's going to be a gold rush on the products. That's not the point. The, the, the products are great, but if you don't use them correctly, you're missing the point. It's like you don't want to buy a Ferrari and drive it on a dirt road, which I think is what a lot of folks would, would do because they just want to sell the Ferrari, right? Like, no, we, our, our products need to be used in a certain way. And we need to integrate that model into our legal structure, for how we're going to do these things. So that means I expect to see a lot more public benefit corporations. I expect to see a lot more nonprofits involved in this space than we saw with cannabis. I expect to see much more of a focus on indigenous reciprocity, on acknowledging the benefits that we are receiving from the people who made them available to us, you know, folks who have been working with these substances for thousands of years, they know what they're doing and, and we can we can benefit a lot from their knowledge. But if we do, we need to compensate them for that. There's there's a, you know, if you get a benefit, there's a give back that, that's necessary here. And so I, I see the psychedelics industry just because of the nature of the work here as moving more in that direct, less in the sort of traditional just drive shareholder value you know the economic benefit is the only thing that matters much more to a stakeholder capitalism model where we have you know we care about the customer and the workers and our impact on the environment and so i i think that those models are going to take hold in the psychedelic space in a way that they haven't in cannabis Hmm. as and and in many other industries frankly you know, it's amazing because the way that I see the industry, it's, it's, it's what you're pointing to. We're like paving the road and as we're driving, walking, whatever, we're realizing, oh, wow, this actually doesn't work. Got to go back and we got to change what we just did before. So we take one right. step back, take two steps forward. And I think that if we continue this process of continuing to bring what we know could work and innovate on it, which I think is really key in this space, because to your point, we can't drop uh, an existing legal structure into something that's so brand new. I love how you right. in the the ancestry aspect of it. There was somebody at the psychedelic science event who was was he was there advocating for the fact that where he was once able to get um, a, a small a small amount of, of mescaline of, of of peyote for a very small amount of money. Now we have to pay a bunch of it for that same amount. So that's right. How can we bring that level of respect for the medicine in this way while we continue to have the boundaries necessary? Because driving on a road with no lanes is dangerous. I come from Colombia. Where the road is dehydrated, <laughs> but man, you got to be careful when you drive. And if yeah. we don't have the level of boundaries as we move into this industry, there's going to be a lot of people that could get hurt. And again, the purpose of why we're here is so that we can set a structure for the future that is sustainable and there's longevity, not just right. exponential growth, because that's not going to lead anywhere. That's right. That's right. Couldn't agree more. Holly, this has been such a powerful conversation. I had a hunch this was going to be like a, just like scratching of the surface, and it absolutely has just been the beginning. I'm really excited to continue the, the the dialogue and to see how it expands. For anybody listening, what do you recommend or suggest or open them up to to do to in any sort of way support this growing industry? Oh man, there's so many things that folks can do to, to support the industry. I I think some of the best places to go to are not necessarily me, you know, but there's there's things like the North Star Project, which is is looking at at building you know, how does the psychedelic community, the industry build itself in a way that that is a little bit different from the way other industries have built themselves? I, I think that's a place to look. 
I think look for growing trade association and industry groups here. I'm doing some initial work on nonprofits and cooperatives for the psychedelic industry to help solve some problems. Like, for example, ketamine-assisted therapy, one of the problems that folks have is driving, right? Like it, it can be dangerous um, if, if you've been in an altered state recently. Maybe finding ways to create driving services specific for the industry where the driver's not just some dude from Uber, but somebody who's been vetted and that, that we know is is safe to take people home or or in maybe an altered state. Those sorts of things. Like keep an eye out for, for projects like that. And also there is a psychedelic alpha just published because I'm a legal dork. I'm going to tell folks to, to go to the legal dork sort of zone. They just published a natural medicine health tracker with Vicente, who's another uh, law firm based here in Denver, but they have offices all over the place. They're, they they do a lot of good work in um, emerging therapies and, and emerging industries more broadly. And they, ha- they have a great resource there on sort of the legal developments in this industry and where things are headed and how you can get involved. Um, I, I think anything like that is a great place to, to start um, in this journey. And look, we're just beginning to build this ecosystem. So folks like who are doing the work that you're doing are, are great places to start as well. You know, if somebody's listening to this, they already know to listen to this podcast, but there are some others that are, that are in the industry that are great as well. Um, and, you know, track me on, on LinkedIn. That's my, my primary uh, zone there. Like I'm, I have a little bit to say on things like this and, and some other, other matters, you know, my law firm has its site. It's, um, Fortis Law Partners here in Denver. So if you live in Colorado, look for us, hit us up. We we do psychedelic work, but we're also we're a business law firm. Like most of my work is in is in general business. And this is just something that I love so much as an industry that I want to make myself available for it. So, you know, if you're listening to this, hit me up there. All my contact information will be on on our website or on uh on LinkedIn. Amazing, Tyler. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for the experience. Um, we're going to do a part two down the road on this and see awesome. how things have shifted and evolved. So looking forward to that. Thank you, sir. For everybody listening, this has been a conversation that, as you could probably notice, there's much more to come. There's a lot to build and we're all a part of it. So thank you all for being a part of it as well. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.